Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Um, before we begin, I'd like to make a personal acknowledgement that we meet today on Aboriginal land, land that always has and always will be Aboriginal, and land that's been seen many appalling acts committed over the struggle for its control. I'm privileged that my Aboriginal friends have welcomed me here, despite this sad history, and I'm humbled by their show of good grace, friendship and ongoing commitment to building this country. Uh, so to the topic of today's forum. Cultural institutions have a responsibility to collect and preserve video games for future access. This industry constitutes an important part of our cultural and economic landscape. Collecting video games can, though, present unique challenges for institutions, including problems of collection development and technological preservation and access. What role can collectors play in the bigger picture of cultural collection of video games and its associated ephemera? Uh, the panel today is comprised of Warren Spector, Creative Director at Junction Point, Disney's Interactive Studio, Dr Winfred Bergmeier, Collection Manager at Computerspiel, Computerspiel Museum in Berlin, Susan Corbett, Senior Lecturer, School of Accounting and Commercial Law, the Victoria University of Wellington, and Helen Stuckey, who here is just described as curator and academic. <laughs> uh, the panel will be overseen by Melanie Swalwell, who's a scholar of digital media arts, cultures and history, and she's been researching the local history of digital games since 2004, first in New Zealand and now in Australia. Research which has often seen her rely upon and collaborate with collectors. She's the project leader and chief investigator of the ARC Linkage-funded um, project, Play It Again, or to give it its full title, Play It Again, Creating a Playable History of Australasian Digital Games for industry, community and research purposes. A truly academic title there. Um, it's a collaboration between ACME, the New Zealand Film Archive, the, the Computerspiel Museum in, in Berlin and several New Zealand and Australian universities. Uh, and we're delighted to have had our first meeting in relation to that project this week. Uh, and I think we, it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, and uh, I think we're a good way into it. Uh, Melanie also launched the Australasian Heritage Software Database. Uh, and I think, probably without further ado, I might ask Melanie to, to come up and perhaps uh, expand a little bit on our speakers and kick it off. Uh, so thanks all for coming. Hope it's useful and enjoyable. Thanks so much, Nick, and um, it's great to be here um, with a fabulous panel of speakers, um, many of whom are my collaborators uh, on the project. So you'll no doubt hear a little bit more about the Play It Again project as we move through it. Perhaps um, I can just extemporise and, and give you a little bit of my personal story to, to make it sound less impenetrable and academic-y as um, Nick has portrayed it. Um, it started by accident, 
really, in 2004 when I went to New Zealand to work at Victoria University of Wellington, my first full-time academic gig after graduating. Um, there wasn't any work in Australia and so, you know, off I went. And uh, I was asked by a museum who were keen to do an exhibition on video games to do the background research into the local histories of digital games in New Zealand. And I thought, what do I know about this? I'm an Australian, you know, I didn't live through this era. Surely it's just going to be the same there as it is everywhere else. What do they expect me to come up with? But oh well, all right, I'll give it a go. I couldn't have been more wrong. And uh, in large part, the fact that I was actually able to produce any, um, anything in my report that was New Zealand specific was due to the incredible efforts of a collector called Michael Davidson, who had spent years charting the history of um, New Zealand-made digital games. And you'll find his work on, online on, the, on his webpage, which is retrogames.co.nz, I think. And uh, so I started on this, and, and I started finding out more and more unique material that was New Zealand-made. And of course, that led to the question, well, what's going to happen to this material? And that's really where this project started. I went around and knocked on people's doors and said, do you know all this exists? It's not in any collections. And uh, that's kind of the story that we're going to pick up today. It's now expanded and it's an Australasian effort, as you heard. So um, I'm really excited about it. And I think it's quite significant to actually get this kind of a project up in Australia with Research Council funding. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It's the first digital preservation as research project that I'm aware of. And there'll also be um, oral history components, popular memory components that we'd like to invite everybody to be a part of and contribute to. And um, you'll, you'll hear about that when it happens. If you uh, would like to follow the project, then you can do that. You'll find us on Twitter. If you search for our blog, you'll, you'll find all the links. It's Play It Again at Flinders. Okay. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce um, our esteemed guest, Warren Spector, um, and invite him to come up onto the stage. And we're going to have a bit of a, a conversation for a little while prior to moving into um, more formal papers from um, Helen Stuckey, Susan Corbett, and Winfried Bergmeier. So, we thought we'd sit over here. Oh. Am I sitting in the right for place? The microphone? Yeah, this is good. Okay. So. Warren, as those of you who were at the, um, the wonderful In Conversation event last night will know, is a private collector. Um, and I'm wondering if you might start by telling us about your collection or collections, as I believe. Sure. Um, I started out as an obsessive compulsive child. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I just can't bear to throw anything away. I come by it honestly. My, my parents were obsessive collectors as well. Uh, my dad. Uh, every time he paid the rent, would keep the little receipt. So we now have a complete record of middle-class rentals in Manhattan and New York City from 1946 to the present. Uh, which, surprisingly enough, the, the Museum of the City of New York actually might be interested in someday because no one else actually kept all that stuff. Um, so th I, my parents just basically never threw anything away. Uh, and uh, so I followed suit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, built a, a fairly substantial collection of books uh, and, uh, and Disney memorabilia. And later on in life, I started collecting 8x10 glossies of actresses who had been dead for 60 years and 
movie posters and uh, toys of all sorts and magazines. If you want a complete run of every issue of Motor Trend magazine from 1958 to the present, I have it, uh, as well as road and track, car and driver, automobile, sports car graphic, uh, film comment, uh, uh, every newspaper that was published uh, during the opening of uh, the World's Fair in New York City in 1964. Uh, uh, the uh, the newspaper from the day Roger Maris hit his 61st home run in 1961, which probably doesn't mean much to you guys. Um, uh, the moon landing, I've got it completely documented. Uh, I have uh, a room in, in one of my houses, which I will discuss in a second, uh, that is nothing but board games, floor to ceiling, every wall covered. Uh, I have a, a collection of uh, World War One airplane uh books and uh, and papers that fills up a set of shelves eight feet tall. I have a collection of, uh, of World's Fair, this is really sounding pathetic, uh, World's Fair uh, guidebooks and uh, paraphernalia and memorabilia going back to 1876. Uh, I, I lose interest in 1904 actually if you want to know the truth. Um, I have a collection of books published by McLaughlin Brothers in the 19th century of words in of books uh, in words of one syllable, I am fascinated by by uh, the idea of, of reading and speaking in words that have just one part, as I do right now. I urge you all to try it and see how well you can do at it. Uh, it's, it is hard to do well, but fun if you can pull it off. Uh, <clears throat> That when I was at C. Jackson Games, we used to play the One Pulse Word game all the time just to, to see if anybody ever noticed and then to drive them mad. <laughs> um, but anyway, I found out there was a whole, there was a, an 18th century, I, I will talk forever, uh, there was a 19th century literacy program for immigrants to the United States. Uh, so people would learn to read English by reading books in words of one syllable. It's just fascinating stuff. Um, anyway, so o over the years, I've just, I've just, I mean, I really just love collecting things. And, and it started out as entirely personal. You know, it's just stuff that I thought was cool. And, you know, I always called books my, my, my best and most constant friends, which is also pathetic. Um, and uh, over the years, I mean, finally, I got to the point um, a few years ago where my wife was just upset that, that our house was overflowing with stuff. We were, are you guys familiar with the Collier Brothers? There's a, there's a, a syndrome called Collier Brothers Syndrome. Uh, it was two brothers in New York City were legendary and they, they it's a long story you should look them up it's a fascinating story but they they were obsessive collectors uh and like their how they when they, when they died in under incredibly mysterious weird collector circumstances uh no i mean okay so look they they found like multiple cars in this house and multiple pianos in this house and every newspaper that these guys had ever read they built like mazes through the house made of newspapers and deadfall traps and things so no one could get in and steal all of their precious stuff and one of them ended up in in bed as a, a diabetic and his brother actually got caught in one of their traps trying to bring him his medicine and so the one of the brother died and then and then the the, the other brother died because the first brother couldn't get to him with his meds um it's <laughs> unbelievable story. anyway so my wife was worried that i was going the way of the collier brothers and so uh, what we did is we, we actually started buying multiple houses, which sounds way bigger a deal than, than it is in Austin. It's very inexpensive to buy property. And so I, I now have a house in which I live which has some books and some artwork and some memorabilia. And then I have a house next door, <laughs> which is my gallery where I keep all of the artwork that I've collected over the years uh, and all the movie posters and movie stills. It's like it's just every wall is covered. It's like a, it's, it is an art gallery. 
uh, and all the musical instruments I've collected over the years and my collection of cameras and movie projectors and stuff. And then there's another house at the other end of the block, <laughs> which is my library where I keep, I have 15,000 books sort of give or take and, uh, in, in all, and they're all like Dewey Decimal, you know. I should, I should really change the Library of Congress, but they're actually Dewey Decimal organized. And, um, and uh, all my magazines. I've got a room that is just the magazines. I've got a room that's the toys. I've got a room that's the fiction. I've got a room that stacks that's the nonfiction. And um, so yeah, I collect a lot of stuff. And I've donated all of my game stuff to a, an archive already. So I don't have to deal with that anymore. Ah, okay. I was going to ask, are there games in there? <laughs> but you did mention last night in the talk, so perhaps I can uh, change the question around to okay. <laughs> how did you come across the material that you um, did have before you donated it, Well, the game uh, material? A, a lot of it. Well, okay, the other thing you have to understand is I, I came from an academic background. I, I didn't start, there, there was no game business when, I, when I, was, I was growing up and when I was in college. It just didn't exist. Um, and so uh, by the time I got into this creative business, I had already uh, been, I mean, not, not to sound too highfalutin, but I was, I was an historian. I mean, that's what I did. I did primary research in, in libraries and research institutions. I, I, I did oral history projects with uh, animators and, and film directors and writers. Uh, I, I lived in, in microfilm, you know, uh, of, of uh, film magazines from 1912. You know, Moving Picture World was like my, my Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and what I discovered when I did that was that uh, the film industry had been exceptionally bad at preserving its own history. Uh, I remember when I was when I was a, a kid, I read a book called uh, "When the Movies Were Young" by Linda Arvidsson Griffith, who's D.W. Griffith's wife, and D.W. Griffith, the father of the movies. We have, I mean, it's that's a huge oversimplification, by the way. And and the the kids I used to teach when I was teaching college would be offended at me for saying this, but you know, let's let's just, D.W. Griffith created the movies, and and in this this biography of her husband, she wrote. Um, Someday there will be a plaque mounted on 10 West 14th Street uh, where the Biograph Studios were, where D.W. Griffith created the movies, commemorating the birth of a new art form. And I, I grew up on 14th Street, and that building had been torn down. <laughs> there was no plaque. The Biograph records had all been thrown away in like 1915. There was no way to research the, the beginning of the movies. And when I was doing my, my master's thesis on Warner Brothers cartoons, which you would think would be fairly well documented, what I discovered was that Warner Brothers ran out of space for their archives and just destroyed all of the cells and contracts and scripts. It was 1967. There was a fire, and they just didn't bother putting the fire out, you know? And, and, um, and there, was, there was none of that stuff existed. So I, 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 found, I, I went to my, my uh, thesis committee and said, you know, I'm writing this, this master's thesis on, on the history of Warner Brothers cartoons, and I've got a fact here, and I've got a fact here, and I'm making up everything. I'm making up the connection. And they said, well, that's what you have to do as an historian, that, that you fill in the gaps in the historical record. And so when I became uh, a creator and not just a, a student of this stuff, I said, I'm not going to let that happen. It may be that games are irrelevant, and 50 years now, no one will care. But it also may be that 50 years, I mean, I was, I was thinking as I was talking last night, the next Shakespeare might be sitting in this room right now. I mean, and how amazing would it be to have, you know, drafts of plays written by, by Shakespeare? But in, in 1598, no one knew that Shakespeare was going to be relevant 500 years in the future. No one knew. And no one, D.W. Griffith didn't care. He threw all his stuff away. And so I said, I'm never going to throw stuff away, and I'm never going to let my peers throw anything away if I can help it. And that's what I've done. 
So how do you think we can best motivate designers to donate their documentation in games to public research collections? Well, I, I, the, the, the challenge that I've faced is, uh, you know, I had to keep it in my file cabinets uh, or, or store it in boxes in, at my office because there, there really hasn't been any place to put it. Again, e people in the game business don't think that what they do is, is important or of lasting value. Uh, they're, they're like the filmmakers of the 30s and 40s. It's just a job of work, you know? It's like, you know, no one cares about my script draft. And, and so there hasn't been any place to put it. Uh, in the United States, I, I can't really speak for, for Australia and New Zealand, I, I, I don't know, but in, sure. in the United States, um, that's changing. I mean, I, I work with um, an, an organization called the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History, which has, um, like, all, have all the standard oil uh, historical documents and records. They have uh, CBS News donated all of its stuff to them. They have uh, any, they've got a, a variety of, of, of amazing collections. And I went and browbeat them along with uh, my, my, my friend Richard Garriott and some other game developers in Austin. I said, start a video game archive. And they said, give us $2 million and we'll do it. You know, we have to pay for archivists, we have to pay for space, we have to pay for conservation. And uh, we said, well, we can't do that. But we, we donated some money ourselves, and then we had a fundraiser to, to hire someone to preserve and catalog the stuff. And um, we, we just convinced them that this was worth saving. And so now there is a video game archive in Austin, Texas. There's one in Stanford, at Stanford in, in California. Uh, they're, they're starting one in Los Angeles. Uh, the Smithsonian has some stuff through their, their copyright office. Uh, but we need to, what we need to do is make sure that there are places that have the, the, the facilities, the physical plant, to do it, and the funding to uh, to catalog, preserve, and uh, and 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 have people available to uh, to make the material available to researchers. And once we once we have that, then we can just start canvassing people. We can just go, give me your stuff. I do that all the time. Send me your stuff. Don't throw it away. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll make sure it ends up someplace where researchers uh, can use it. And they already are. I've, we've had we've had you know dozens of people come through and use my papers, you know, to, to study the, the, the history of video games. So we just have to, we have to have a place for it. That's the most important thing, and that falls down to money. Mm. Anybody got $2 million? Nah, okay. What about source code? What about, apart from the really important, um, you know, the oral histories, the papers, there's some beautiful exhibitions, some beautiful examples of, of storyboards and whatnot down in the, the Game Masters exhibition. What about the games themselves? Is that too much of a stretch to get developers to be lodging their code? It's interesting because... Publishers, the, their games? Yeah, that's, that's really astute because there, there are two aspects to game preservation and, and people tend to fall into one of the two camps and we need to have more of a sort of a holistic approach, I think. Uh, there is the, the collection, the, the collecting and, and preservation of, um, of, of all the background, the stuff that was, you, you create to build a game. Uh, and then promote a game and, and sell a game, you know, the boxes and the, the key art and the marketing materials and the scripts and storyboards. And the, but, but there's also, um, how do you play the games? I mean, the mo you want to know what the most remarkable thing about the, the Acme exhibit is to me? That there are 125 games playable down there. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to talk about where the, uh, the, the collector community really makes a difference? It's in making those continuing to make those games playable and accessible. Um, because there are only two ways to do it. You actually, you either have to keep the hardware working, you know. I mean, like like Richard Garriott's first game was done on paper tape on a PDP-11. Mm. 
anybody got one handy to play play that game? Um, uh, yeah, I, the system shock. I was I was floored when I saw System Shock playing downstairs, or wherever. Or maybe it's upstairs from here. I don't even know. Um, but you know, I I haven't. I, I was talking to Doug Church, the, who's the the, uh, the project lead on that game, and, and a couple of years ago, and I was saying, you know, I really want to play that. I've been trying to get it running, and I can't do it. And he said, Yeah, I tried too. I can't get it running either. You know. So the fact that you can go downstairs and or upstairs or wherever it is and play System Shock here at Acme is stunning. And I would I don't know this for a fact, but I would bet a ton of money that it's a collector who had a copy of the game, uh, got it installed, and got it running. You know, we either need to preserve all that hardware in the state it was in. I mean, man, Origin, we screwed around with PC memory like you would not believe. I mean, getting a, an Origin game running good luck, getting it running back when we made it was tough. Uh, getting it running now, I just can't even imagine. Uh, or we need, we need people to write emulators. And, and then it's like, you want to you get me really mad? Just, just talk to me about publishers and their approach to emulators. Oh, my God. Warren, please tell us about publishers and their approach <laughs> to emulators. <laughs> you know, I've, I've worked for Stand Back, Musketeers, they shall sample my blade. Um, yeah, sorry, it's a Daffy Duck reference. Um, anyway, uh, you know, em emulation is God's gift to historians, okay? Because it, it is the, the best way to keep games accessible. You know, as hardware changes. I, I mean, I don't even have a computer that has a five and quarter inch floppy anymore. I have all those games that I worked on. I have all that source code. I have I have all that artwork, and it, I literally can't get it off the stupid discs. Assuming the discs still work, okay. So y you know, y y I, I look at the you know the the emulators, the guys who create emulators and make ROMs available, and and you talk to publishers and they go, we need to stop that. We need to sue those guys. They don't own those ROMs. We own that IP. You know, there's an IP specialist over here. Holy cow! I mean, figure out figure out how to convince publishers who who believe I own it, therefore it has value, even if I'm not doing anything with it. Get them over that. You know, I mean, they they just have to because they don't care about a 20 year old game. They just think maybe someday I might want to do something with it. And if I let if I if I if I preserve it in this form or I let a, a private collector. Uh, or, or a gamer like build an emulator that lets you play it and then they trade the ROMs around, my ownership of that IP is going to be compromised. And it's baloney. I mean, it's probably legally the right thing for them to do, but again, it's very short-sighted because they're never going to do anything with it and they're going to prevent us from having it available in the years to come. So I'm aware of some publishers who are, as you said, preserving that game in case they want to do something with it in the future. But I know there's an awful lot of stuff that I, I'm afraid for, I fear for. Sure. Well, the thing is, that you can never know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, um, you know, if, if hypothetically there were someone at Disney who really, really loved classic Disney games, just just crazy idea. But, you know, and, and they thought, wow, it'd be really cool if we could make those old games accessible to modern players. Mm. You know, it, it, it's nice that Disney, it, it would hypothetically be nice that Disney still owns you know, Castle of Illusion and DuckTales and Quackshot and, and Mickey, Mickey Mania and all those games that, that, you know, a lot of us loved uh, when we were coming up through the gaming ranks. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, there's a part of me that, that understands where publishers are coming from because if, if those ROMs are out there and their ownership of the property is compromised, then maybe they won't be able to, to make them commercially available uh, in some new form. But I don't want to count on 
just the randomness of some hypothetical guy ending up working at Disney who happens to love those old games and wants to champion them and bring them back. Because odds are, no one's ever going to make Underworld again. You know, and no one's going to make, you know, Day of the Tentacle is not like going to get re-released next. I mean, maybe they will, but I don't want to count on the luck of that to, to keep those games around. That has to be the perfect segue for leading into some reflection on your um, Epic Mickey games. I'm wondering, um, do you think that they might act as sites for preserving cultural memory or, or, or taking it forward in new ways? Does it make sense to talk of a game in that way? Uh, well, I certainly hope so. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, the one of the, the most important things I wanted to do in, in the Disney Epic Mickey games was was honor Disney's history. It's, it, I think it's it's easy to forget. I mean, I don't want to turn this into a Disney talk, but it's really easy to forget how how influential uh, Walt Disney was. I mean, I, I look back and I mean, I've kind of personally modeled my not that I've succeeded at any level like Walt Disney, but I sort of modeled my life after after Walt Disney and David O. Selznick. I mean, the produce, two producers in Hollywood in the classic days, and and I, I think it's easy to forget that Walt Disney might have been the most influential cultural force in the 20th century. I mean, forget about you know pick your favorite artist or your favorite musician. I mean, Walt Disney touched more people than any other human in the 20th century who didn't start a war, you know, and and I, I think it's worth remembering that. And and it's it's easy for for adults in particular, I think, to forget that. That, that part of themselves that was touched by Disney. So I, I, I really wanted to make a game that, that reminded everyone of that. And, and to do that, I think we had to, we had to make sure that we, we were um, honest and truthful and respectful of Disney's history, which is why the archives were such an amazing resource for us. Uh, we lived in the archives uh, and in my personal collection, which is scary. And um, uh, so yeah, absolutely, I think, I think a game can um, can can you know sort of f focus us on history, but that doesn't help preserve stuff. It, it it gives it to us in a new form. I mean, I'm what, what I what I'm trying to do in the games is give you something that's familiar but strange. You know, sort of touch that nostalgic nerve and then twist it up so it, it isn't quite what you thought it was. So in a sense, that goes back to your previous point about um, those old games are not likely to actually have value in the future. Um, they're not likely to be re-released. In a sense, that's what's happened with the Epic Mickey games. You've actually remade that <laughs> material into a new form and that's where the value lies. Yeah, so they yeah. could kind of allow to let some of the earlier stuff but what be preserved. Yeah, I, I mean, I never really thought about it that way, but I think, I think the, the, the end result of that is, is, in a best case scenario, might be that experiencing that history through Disney Epic Mickey might make someone interested in, in Castle of Illusion or interested in some of those historical games or historical artifacts. And maybe that will encourage Disney to focus more on preserving it. But that, that's pretty grandiose. I'm not sure I, I want to think that, that big. It'd be nice if that happened. So it doesn't sound like there's currently much game preservation going on in the, the corporate archives. It, interestingly, um, you know, I've gotten to know the, the Disney archive folks really well, and uh, I love them. I mean, they're amazing. <laughs> they are the heart and soul of that company in a very real sense. Uh, and I've talked to them about that. I've explained, you know, I'm, I'm building, I mean, the, the stuff you see downstairs I I around the Disney Epic Mickey stuff, it's a tiny fraction of my personal collection. And the concept art that's on that monitor is 0.1% of the concept art we generated for the game. 
I mean, the, the amount of material we, we created, I mean, absolutely stunning, beautiful, fascinating, historically significant stuff that we created, it's overwhelming. And I, I've, I've talked to uh, the archivists about that. It's like there, there is no one preserving Disney's video game history at all. And it's, it, it, it boils down to money and re time and resources again. Um, and and the, 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 the painful thing for me is I, I have helped create this video game archive in my hometown. I have terabytes of data. I have rooms full of, of, of things on paper. And I, the, the, the video game archive would love to have that in, in their collection because it's part of, I mean, it, it's like it's the Warren Spector collection, as crazy as that sounds. And it's part of that, it's part of that story. So they'd love to have it, but it's, it gets back to that ownership thing again. Disney doesn't want their proprietary materials in an external archive. So, but they don't have the resources to do anything with it. So it's this catch-22. They would love to preserve it. They recognize the importance of preserving it, but they don't have any way to do it. And because of the way corporations work, they can't just let somebody else have it, okay? And then on top of that, I mean, let's not even talk about the other Disney studios and the external developers who just throw their stuff in the trash when they get done with the game because they don't have room to store it all. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding? Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. All right, so hearing that you've actually got a film history background um, and, and, you know, multiple, multiple collections, I'm really looking forward to asking you um, about, uh, I wanted to, to reflect, get you to reflect on a quote from another collector that you might have heard of, um, the German collector Walter Benjamin, mm -hmm. who believed that while public collections may be less objectionable socially and more useful academically than private collections, the objects get their due only in the latter. So he was talking about books, mm -hmm. and he was passionate about books. It's from the essay, Unpacking My Library. Um, and so there's, there's some sort of sense in which they're t he's torn, and I, I, I recognise this in some of my work with collectors, you know. Mm. They're looking after it beautifully, and yet, what about the public institutions? You know, they need to step up as well. And so, and maybe the, there's actually a third term here as well with the corporate archives. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my mm. personal preference would be for it to be in institutions like this, and at the Center for American History, and the Harry Ransom Center, and, and the Smithsonian. I mean, I think that's where, that's where this stuff belongs, mm. you know. Uh, you know, the Margaret Herrick Research Library in LA, which is where a lot of uh, film memorabilia ended up, film references ended up. Uh, I think history belongs to everyone, and, and to, to keep it hidden away in a, in a, a corporate vault seems terrible to me. Uh, Disney would disagree with that, by the way. Um, and I think having it in, in private hands is also a crime. I mean, it's like when I, I, I do a lot of, I get a lot of my, my stuff on, on at, uh, through auctions, you know, uh, and, and I, I feel a little guilty about it because there is stuff in my, at my, in my gallery and in my house that should be hanging in museums and should be available to, uh, to researchers at, at universities. Uh, and it's just not. But the, the thing is, someday, I mean, I've, I've already, uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, bequeathing all that stuff in my will. I mean, all this stuff is going to, it, it's not, it's not going to get sold mm -hmm. to, to, so my niece and nephew can go to college. I mean, as painful as that is for me to admit, it's going to go someplace where, where in 50 years, uh, either someone can burn it because they don't have space or 
it'll be available to historians, you know. Um, and and I, th I think it's, it's necessary right now, unfortunately necessary, for personal collectors to keep doing what they're doing until, um, you know, the, the sort of institutions like this become commonplace enough and well enough funded uh, where it isn't an unusual occurrence for there to be a, a cultural institution doing an, a show about video games. When that becomes commonplace, and when there are armies of, of archivists and conservation people uh, manning the, or, or personing the, uh, you know, the, the shelves uh, of those research institutions, then I think it's important for private people to turn over their collections. You know, you don't own history, right? You, you just sort of, you're the caretaker of it. And right now we still need those personal caretakers very, very badly. Mm. Uh, but someday I hope that's not the case. Mm. So, um, I suppose we're looking then at collaborations really between mm -hmm. um, collectors and collecting institutions or institutions like this that are perhaps thinking about <laughs> whether, you know, the extent to which they become collecting institutions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, if, if you look at, uh, at, at E3 this year, uh, one of the, the events planners at Disney uh, said, wouldn't it be cool if we, if we we're, we're focusing, we want to remind people about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and about how, how the Disney Epic Mickey games really do honor that Disney history stuff. And, and one of the event planners, uh, Mary Bonafide, bona, bona fide genius. I never thought about that. Mary Bonafide is, Bonafide is a bona fide genius. Um, she, she suggested we do an exhibit uh, of Disney, of historical artifacts drawn from the archives and from my personal collection. Uh, there are things that I have that the archives don't have. There are things, trust me, there are things the archives have that I don't. Um, and so that was a collaboration uh, between, between a private collector and, and a, a corporate archive. Uh, and I think that's true here for the ACME exhibit as well. I mean, some of this stuff is, is from, from Tim Schaefer, and some of it's from me, and some of it is from Nintendo, and, and some of it is from private collectors. Uh, Pedro sitting right over here, right? Um, so yeah, I think, I think that collaboration is, is necessary. And, Maybe, maybe the private collectors can actually start to convince some of the people at ACME and the Smithsonian and, and the Center for American History that, uh, that this is worth doing. Mm. What do you think is the biggest challenge then to, to making this happen? Uh, it's, vision, all, it's, it's all money. It's all money. money. It all boils down to money. Uh, if the Center for American History had, had more money, they, would, they, they recognize the value or the potential value of a video game archive. Uh, they've, they already see people coming in to use the materials that are there now. Uh, there's, there's the Warren Spector collection, there's the Richard Garriott collection, there's some, there, I mean, there, there, the Steve Jackson collection, there, there are all sorts of things there already that people are using right now. Uh, it's just, if, you know, I mean, the, the economy is tough everywhere, mm -hmm. but even in good times, uh, if, if the University of Texas, which is, which is where the, 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 uh, the Center for American History is affiliated with the University of Texas, as is the Harry Ransom Center, which is an enormous research institution. They have the opportunity to, to spend their money buying a Gutenberg Bible or my first Deus Ex design doc. Which one do you think they're gonna, I mean, not that they bought any of my stuff, but what do you, where are they gonna put their, their resources, right? So uh, it's, it all boils down to money, not desire. And the challenge that they don't quite realize is this, there is a small window now whilst some of this stuff is still working. And if we don't move on it quickly, 
Well, it's still working. It hasn't been thrown in the trash. I'm not dead yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are all sorts of wonderful mm -hmm. reasons to start this effort now. Mm -hmm. I did a master class in, uh, in video game uh, development and criticism at, at the University of Texas uh, four years ago, three years ago. And, uh, you know, it had two parts. There was, a, there was a practical part where we had workshops and, you know, students actually built games and all that stuff. But one night a week, I would uh, browbeat my friends into coming down and talking to the talking to the class, and we videotape them. They're online. You can see all of my master class. You can see the interview parts of them. And I, I it was I was very very conscious of I want to get these people in front of a camera, so I can ask them the stuff that I know because I'm their friend and they've spilled all their secrets to me, and I'm not a journalist. Mm. You know, give me the give me the real story. I want the real scoop. Don't give me that that you know package for the press stuff. I want the real nothing personal to press. I want I want the real scoop, mm -hmm. and uh, I I wanted it uh, before those guys uh, forgot it, you know, got too old and started forgetting things or or passed away. We've already, mm -hmm. we've lost Danny Button. I mean, we we are starting to lose developers, mm -hmm. you know, and we've got to get that oral history. That's that may be the most important thing to me personally. Record people's memories before mm -hmm. they're gone. It's tragic. I, I moderate the, um, the IGDA's game moderation list and one of the projects that we have going is a memorials project. Oh, wow. And, you know, every month Man. or so, someone's posting about another game developer who's, who's passed on. So wow. the time is now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably a good note to um, pass on to um, our next speaker. I'm so happy. What a happy <laughs> note. <laughs> Thank you so much, Warren. We'll bring him back for a, a panel discussion at the end. But um, in the meantime, I'd like to uh, call on Helen Stuckey, who uh, you would have uh, heard speak in the previous panel as the chair. Helen is game extraordinaire, Australian game historian extraordinaire, I would have to say. She um, has done a lot of work uh, over quite a few years to actually um, begin to research the history of game development in this country, as you, you might have been able to tell. Um, she is currently devoting herself to, to researching uh, that in a, a more formal manner. Um, she put on the um, exhibition about Beam software back in 2005. And uh, I'm really pleased to... Six! Oh, five, six, you know. I'm really pleased to be able to um, invite her up to, to speak about some of her work now. Simon, can we get my computer up? And I won't walk away from the mic this time, I promise. Okay. Um, so video games are really significant to mu museum culture too as the first native digital art form and this creates a whole lot of challenges for the museum and these are challenges both in collecting and in display. Um, I'm really going to talk about collecting today but uh, for display um, Warren actually touched on some of these in his talk last night. They're a time-based art form and they actually require a level of literacy to actually navigate them and experience them. So um, these are, are big challenges when you put games in the gallery. Uh, 
One of the things that uh, I'm not an expert on, and when Andreas Lang came to speak at ACME in 2005, Andreas Lang's the director of the Berlin Computer Skill Museum, and um, was talking about how your average console uh, 10 to 40 years before the chips fuse and it becomes unusable. Your average uh, cartridge, game cartridge or disc, you know, before bit rot makes it completely useless, we don't know, 10, 20, you know. And, and then suddenly the, the immediacy uh, of the need to start to preserve games sort of really hit me. Um, because I, I previously just sort of thought that they would be like art with us forever, like painting. And I'm an uh, art historian, so you know we look at paintings that are hundreds of years old, and um, and I had kind of that attitude. So that was a big shock. Um, but one of the really interesting things about video games in terms of museum culture is, even though we've looking at them as a new kind of part of screen culture, a new kind of a thing that to celebrate within the realm of screen culture, I think they're actually a Trojan horse. I think what they are making museum culture look at is the fact that as we move into the 21st century, so much of what we create is now created in this digital network society. So if, the, if games make the museum nervous, then they better kind of wise up because this is the site that most of our kind of social creative activity is going to be happening. So we need to learn how to deal with network cultures and dynamic audiences. Okay. And one of the things that's particularly fascinating about video games in terms of museums' object-orientated understanding of collecting uh, and the understanding of the author as, as owning the kind of creative content of the work is the way they, they sort of violate that. Um, and because software is mut a mutable medium and video games often invite uh, their users, their players, gamers, to kind of create within that environment, it completely changes the understanding of what we're collecting, what we're preserving, what we're celebrating. And there's a kind of example of a, a Team Fortress mod, Melbourne-made mod. Thank you very much. Um, and also an example from the, you know, the, the time when uh, Something Awful's Meta Guild, which is fascinating in its own way, uh, Goon Squad, uh, took down the Band of Brothers ship. So they were actually, the, the fan base is writing the narrative of this game. And it's an epic narrative. It's a big narrative. It's not a side quest. Um, now, arcade machines kind of were easy in museum culture, the arcade machine. It's an object, we can put that somewhere, we can put it on display, it's uh, easy to play, it's designed to be. Um, so we like arcade machines in the gallery, they're friendly, we like to collect them. Um, we don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> we can't read it. <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> uh, our audiences can't read it. It exists for a moment in time. Um, who owns it? You know, because it's, it's an event. <laughs> uh, it's, so this is one of the really big challenges around uh, collecting um, is video, video games and preserving video games. So, you know, are games, are games an artifact or an experience. And uh, this is a proposition that Henry Lowood put forward, who's done so much from Stanford University, who's done so much of the really important foundation work about helping us uh, 
get started on the big task of collecting and preserving video games. And you can see the white paper that's up online that the um, IGDA uh, preservation SIGs created. So Lowood asks, like, you know, either games are fixed objects or their experiences. You know, are they activities? Are they artifacts? Now, now obviously, they're both. Um, but what do we collect? And um, this is actually from uh, Chris Methanis, who's a curator of the Art of Video Games at the Smithsonian, uh, the one the exhibition on at the moment. He put this really nice way of talking about how we uh, understand video games as a kind of conversation between the artist, the gamer, and the player. Uh, and I, in there, we forgot, so the artist, the game, and the player, sorry. Uh, in there, the game also takes in that sort of big technology component, which is always really important for video games because they, uh, they're very locked into a history of technology. Um, and if you go back and think about Game On, it's very much about a narrative about technological evolution, the, the original Barbican exhibition. Um, and I think this is a really sort of poetic way to help us think about what we need to preserve. So we need to preserve the, the creator as a really important voice, the artist. We need to preserve the actual game, which has lots of challenges. And we also need to, to preserve the voice of the player, which is both the experience of being able to keep the game playable, which is really critical to us, but also the surrounding culture of what everybody did with that game. Um, and James Newman, who is a, Amer uh, sorry, UK academic, who is very much involved in the preservation uh, project in the UK, which name's gone completely out of my head. Um, he talks about the fact that you really can't understand a video game or appreciate it if you don't understand the ways in which it's enmeshed and informed by the cultures and communities that support it. Now, this doesn't mean we all have to go out there and cosplay because we all participate in this culture even just by using a game walkthrough. And is there anyone in this room who has never used a walkthrough? Didn't think so. <laughs> um, so this is really kind of critical artifacts that are part of games history and they're all created by the user community, by the fans, not by the creators. This is a Grand Theft Auto walkthrough and I love them because they're so hypertextual. So we know when people wrote those linear walkthroughs and then Grand, Text, sorry, Grand Theft Auto came along and everyone, oh my God, you know, and had to go off and create hypertext documents because it's the only way you can create a walkthrough. So what it becomes the job of the museum is how we start thinking about displaying and collecting all these kinds of artefacts. And here's a few more examples of the kind of significant player-created stuff. Uh, the Red versus Blue series made in Halo by Rooster Teeth. Uh, the very first mod that we think is the very first mod. There could be others. House of Smurfenstein. Um, and of course, now we have mods made in game engines to make mods. So where's the original object there? So you can see how challenging this is in terms of thinking about the way the museum has thought about what it collects. And then if you do collect a video game, you know, a lot of games now are actually just about empowering the players to make content. So there's obviously, you know, if we've got the hardware and the software, um, we can't put that in the gallery for you to play without you really understanding the culture of Minecraft is the culture of the people who use it and the extraordinary things that have come from that. Um, so these are all the challenges that, that the museum is now facing. And I, I think what's really important about these challenges too is for now we're thinking about them in terms of games, but this is 
everything now. This is, you know, this is how we, how we create and socialise and interact. And, and games are this Trojan horse that are bringing this to museum culture. Now, the other thing that's really significant about this amazing collection of gamers and users and players who are, are brilliantly creative is that they've been very good at doing some of the heavy lifting for us. Um, this is a game called Hall of Light, which is a, a media database, uh, and it's hopefully game, did I say? This is a website. This might hopefully will work. Um, so communities of fans who have been passionate about these early games, this is for Amiga games, have created websites, which one day we'll see. Um, but what I wanted to show you is I wanted to first show you Hall of Light, which was for Amiga, because it's so incredibly professional um, in the way it's organised, its fields, its collection. It's sort of collection management is top scale. And um, a nice thing about Hall of Light is they actually paired with a group called Software Preservation Society who would make Susan very happy because they follow the rules very carefully in terms of software preservation. So they ask people to mail them the games. They, men they then copy them, uh, but they don't put the game, Rob, up online. Sorry, the, the copy of the software up online. They, um, they merely preserve it in perpetuity. So the one day in the future that uh, all of these issues around copyright will be resolved and, uh, and you'll be able to come and play it. Oh, great. So this is more in relation to uh, the site that, that uh, now I've lost my head. So for our the Play It Again project, <laughs> hey Brett. <laughs> um, for the Play It Again project, we're, we're obviously looking at early computers, microcomputers of the 1980s, and um, for Beam Software, they did a lot of work on the Spectrum, and they did a lot of work on the Commodore 64. Now, a lot of the heavy lifting for us as um, preservationists uh, has been done by the fan community. And this is like really exciting. This is the world of Spectrum, dedicated to all things Spectrum. Um, Go to their, let's go to their site first. Let's work. So, yay! Let's see if it works right. Okay. So, it's the biggest archive of spectrum-related material. And basically, they go through and they, they, they tell you what their aims are. And it's literally to preserve things all spectrum-based. Now, this is run by about five people, and they're based all around... Well, mostly Europe and Australia because the spectrums weren't so big in the States. Um, and the efforts that they have gone to are really, really extraordinary. <coughs> so we'll go and look for the Hobbit. Is anyone familiar with The Hobbit? Why are we not getting any pictures? Oh, there we go. The Hobbit was um, made 
in Melbourne by Beeb Software Melbourne House in 1982. Uh, it was a num the number one game in the UK and in Europe uh, for the Spectrum and it got ported to lots of other platforms. So here you go, they've got a beautiful compilation of you know, who the authors are, tie-in licences, the controllers, the just this enormous amount of work that they've done. Now this didn't exist, I have to say, when I did um, the Beam exhibition, but it does now. And wonderful things like known errors, you know? So when you're testing the game and you're thinking, is this right? Um, there's actually uh, known errors documented and you're not, it's not, you think it's not nothing to do with the emulation. And one of the really exciting things, if I can get it to work, They've got it working in the browser. Now this is part of our project to, hap to get this happening. Janice gives you a curious map. <laughs> Door. Sorry, says hurry up. Sorry, I can sing a lot about gold and get all the lyrics that you want to say. Sorry, I feel like you let all the beautiful graphics load before I. <laughs> right, we'll only go as far as the troll. And then we'll leave them there. But basically the whole game's there. And you can just open it up on your browser and you can play it through. And so there's this amazing work that's been done by collectors um, that we can draw on to create our collections. And there's really going to be a need for the museum to work more with these collectors' community. And, I mean, that sounds so obvious, but often it's hard for museums to hand over authority uh, and particularly to um, groups who are seen as fans because the, the status of the fan is often not acknowledged. But the fans are kind of can be real experts in their culture uh, with their passion and their knowledge. This, you know, to hire somebody with this kind of expertise about the spectrum is, is very problematic. And, and also there's, there's something about fan culture and um, the theorist um, Nancy Baum discusses the importance of that kind of fan culture in the showing off. So not only do you have these multiple voices, they're correcting each other and they're making sure it's right because that's, that's part of the culture of being passionate about something. So there's really sort of rich, rich resources. And the other exciting thing about fans, sorry, I really don't like a microphone. And I've got my mouse. Back to the slides, I hope. Um, is that they're the players and just show you the loading screen for the Hobbit. There is a purpose for this.
Isn't that beautiful? Okay, and under here, we don't have many comments. Oh, that was me, wasn't it? Yeah, mistake. Okay, under here, we don't have a lot of comments, but we have some, for me, useful ones, you know, of people talking about um, three days trying to load the game. Uh, that sound, you know, and this guy talking about playing the tape through a stereo at high volume because that would often guarantee it would load. <laughs> Lucky his family. <laughs> Nothing worse than 10 minutes of loading and then the game's crashing. So look, fan knowledge is based on lived experience. It's a situated knowledge. It, it can tell us, you know, whilst preserving the code and, and is meretricious and, and being able to let contemporary people play the game is great. But one of the things we learnt when we did the Beam exhibition is it's very hard to go back and play these games and understand why they were so exciting, why they were so important. So as historians, we really, really need to capture the energy and excitement of that sort of first experience. So one of the things in the Play It Again um, project is we really want to work with collecting fan memories. We really need to preserve just the people's kind of understanding of these games when they first started off. And I think, you know, this is pressing for games, but I also think it's pressing for the, the museum. And I think one of the things about... Um, the story of games in relation to the museum is there, it's not just about the preservation of games, it's also about the remediation of the museum. And I think the games are the first thing that the museum are going to have to think about seriously in terms of collecting uh, for the future, in terms of collecting digital artefacts, player-made content, and actually dealing with the loss of authority and the loss of the object that they're traditionally used to. So I think uh, all the work that we that we would do around games is hugely significant and incredibly timely. So, um, and it's really exciting to be involved in a media in a media that's so much about its community of users. So, congratulations to you all, community of users, and I hope that you'll help support us in the in the Play It Again project. So, thank you. Helen. Uh, Helen's actually going to um, be working on a, uh, an, a really innovative part of this project which is going to be the popular memory database and that will be um, where our project has an interface with fans, with users, with collectors where we invite you to tell us your memories and respond to um, some of the materials that we find in the course of the project that we'll be putting up. So um, we really hope that you'll all participate in that. Okay, it's my great pleasure now to introduce my former colleague at Victoria University of Wellington, Susan Corbett. She teaches in the law um, and, and accounting school, sorry, something like that, law and commercial accounting, it's been a few years. Um, Susan and I first worked together um, at the very outset of this project where I had dug up all these really interesting games that nobody else had ever heard of outside of New Zealand. And we decided that we would set to and actually do something about trying to um, begin the work of software preservation in New Zealand. And uh, I'm sure she'll tell you about some of the work that she um, did back then, but she's also just completed a really fabulous project with cultural institutions generally, um, where she's asking, how well does IP law facilitate um, the processes of digitisation that they're trying to do. And you can perhaps guess what the answer might be. <laughs> Thanks, Melanie. 
Well, hello everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be here and very honoured that I've been asked to present to you, especially since the only game I have ever played is, what's it called again? Monkey Island, Island many years ago when my kids were small. <laughs> so I'm not, um, there's not a single game in this presentation, although there are some pictures of old games, old New Zealand games. Um, I'm not the villain I've been made out to be, I'm afraid. I actually don't agree with the law, even though I do know the law and I have to tell you the law. So I'm, I'm not happy with the law. I, um, from a lawyer's perspective, of course, video games are very problematic. There's a lot of overlapping copyrights in them. And we have the music, the artwork, the graphics, the computer um, software, all of those, each of them, has its own copyright protection. And as you probably know, copyright exists for many years. The lifetime of the author and another 70 years in Australia and the States. In New Zealand, it's the lifetime of the author plus 50 years. So when we think that the earliest games were created in the 70s and 80s, it's obvious that they're still well protected by copyright. And therein lies the problem. Because we wanted, in our first project that Melanie was running in New Zealand, we wanted to preserve early New Zealand software and early New Zealand games, of which there are quite a lot, we couldn't track down the copyright owners. Because to preserve the games, you need to copy them. And to make digital copies, as you probably know, involves a lot of copying, not just one copy we couldn't find the owners of the copyright, and that was a huge problem. The other problem, which is the one that um, Warren alluded to, and that is that companies more of more, who've created more modern games, such as Disney, they don't want to release their games to cultural institutions. So again, they can't be used. To me, the answer lies in extending legal deposit because if you, if you understand about legal deposit, all books created or publications made in Australia or made in New Zealand, a copy of that publication has to be deposited at a certain cultural institution. In New Zealand, it's the National Library. Now, why can't that be extended to games? Because that would solve the Disney problem. Each cultural institution in each country would have a copy of the audiovisual production. So that's my solution, but I'll move on to the problems. Let's hope this works. Yes. So this was, Rate was a Christchurch electronics company and electronic arcade games producer in the 60s and 70s. We in New Zealand had a thriving electronic industry at the time due to import restrictions. Um, so Electronics couldn't be imported, therefore the local industry proliferated. And so we had a lot of games produced by, amongst others, this company, Rate. But by the time we came to do our project, which was to preserve some of these early games, we couldn't track down where the company had gone. It had been dissolved. We couldn't find who'd um, taken over the, the copyrights, the intellectual property in the games. And so we couldn't proceed, because we were doing it through the university. We didn't want to take any chances. I'm being urged to tell you all to take a chance, to 
um, adopt risk management um, when you're preserving games. And I kind of agree with that, really. But as a lawyer, I can't say don't to take that risk. Um, so we didn't, anyway, because we were being funded by the university. So we didn't take the risk. So this is an academic presentation. We always have outlines. It's not just a game. I'm going to talk about the cultural heritage implications of games, preservation and access, orphans, and some copyright law issues, which I seem to have duplicated there, and the future and role of collectors. So not just a game. As you know, um, the video gaming industry is hugely important economically. The biggest grossing DVD of 2002, for the first time, was not a movie, but a game. It sold over one million copies in the United States. But as well as their economic importance, of course, a large number of academic scholars are acknowledging the video game as worthy of study. So, too, is the United Nations. And you'll see that there's a charter on the preservation of digital heritage, recommending that digital heritage be preserved. The Charter also recommends that born digital heritage should be preserved as quickly as possible. It should be prioritised because of the danger of its deterioration, which has also been discussed. So, of course, we've got this um, requirement that um, early digital heritage be preserved, but we don't have the law supporting it. So it's one of these um, irritating areas where the law hasn't kept up. Um, you all know the physical fragility of, um, the, of the systems, the DVDs that can't, or the CDs that can't be played, the tape that's gone, um, can't be operated now, and the obsolete platforms and operating systems. Because of those, again, as Warren alluded to, the answer is emulation. But to emulate a game or to provide an emulation platform for it, you need to copy. And this is where the problem, again, arises. If you can track down the copyright owners and get their permission, then there's no problem. And we've already had some, um, in the session before lunch, some of the um, earliest Australian games producers the individuals are here now and presumably will give their consent. In New Zealand, we didn't have that luck. We hardly tracked down any of the um, original producers or authors of video games. More commonly, in fact, especially for these early games, the owners have disappeared and can't be tracked down. So the elephant in this room, I suggest, is copyright law. We're all ignoring it. We choose to ignore it, but you can't really ignore it because that is what the law says. Even if the law is bad, what we need to do is to lobby for the law to change. Most importantly, it needs to change for orphan works. Orphan copyright works are copyright works whose owners can't be traced. And it's a huge problem for cultural institutions not just video games, but collecting all sorts of items. Most institutions now want to put their collections online, for example. They may have an item in their collection. They can't track down the copyright owner, 
So they can't legally copy it or digitise it and put it online to make it available. The law doesn't, doesn't permit them to do that. Um, oh, I had a couple of examples. This is one of the early games in New Zealand, um, Katronics. Again, this one, this had a company where there was no record preserved of what had happened to the company once the company was dissolved. Um, I had a research assistant who tracked down the, uh, the firm of accountants and the firm of lawyers who acted for the company in the 70s and 80s. Both firms had destroyed all records of their former clients, so that was no help. And similarly with Sportronic, which was, is another um, fabulous game that some of you may know about. I didn't play it. As you know, I only played Monkey Island. I'm very fond of Monkey Island, and I'm very pleased that we're going to hear more about it in the next presentation. <laughs> now, it's not just a problem in New Zealand and Australia. This is the quote from The Guardian, the UK newspaper. After running a pilot project to clear the rights for 1,000 hours of archive programming for online use, the BBC calculated it would take 800 people three years of full-time work to clear the rights to its archive. Now, most of these business or cultural heritage institutions don't have the money or the staff to make all these checks. So it's almost an impossible task. Although the um, European Union has actually come up with a proposal for orphan works for cultural heritage institutions, to use the process they're suggesting, you need to have satisfy the powers that be that you've made a diligent search. Now, that's just very difficult for cultural heritage, heritage institutions who don't have the money or the staff to make these searches. So why isn't there legislation for orphan works? There's pressure from institutions and also economic, also businesses wanting to use orphan copyright works for um, commercial purposes. Well, the rights holders aren't very happy about the idea of there being legislation for orphan works. They argue that it will allow, it will circumvent their own rights and will allow people to use their works after they've made very cursory searches for the owners. So they're not happy about it. Also, they argue that a digitised work can be manipulated and restructured, in other words, to appear as a fake orphan and then used um, without their authority. The governments to date have also disagreed with the idea of having legislation for orphan works. <clears throat> they say there's no data, they don't know what the problem is. Therefore, as the extent of the problem isn't clear, they've got better things to do than to worry about orphan works. Uh, this is just a slide about the recent EU proposal. Um, requiring a prior diligent search. This has only just come out in the last few weeks. Whether it will go ahead, I don't know, but it will only apply to the European Union, to countries in the EU. It won't help Australia or New Zealand without orphan works problems. 
The diligent search the EU recommends includes legal deposit and collecting society's databases. Doesn't really help us for audiovisual works. So our orphan audiovisual works are going to remain orphans. But there is some good news, surely. Copyright is not a monopoly. Some statutory public good uses are permitted, even during that long term of protection. And one of the public good uses, this is a terrible slide, ignore it. Um, <laughs> one of the public good uses relates to cultural heritage institutions. That it allows cultural heritage institutions to make a copy of an item in its collection for preservation if the item is in danger of deterioration. Aha, so surely that helps us with audiovisual works. Well, it's not really adequate for best practice digital archiving because when you're going to digitally archive something or preserve it or, em or provide it on an so you can emulate, play it on an emulation platform, you need to make lots of copies and the Act only allows one copy. So in this terrible copyright act you have, which is this thick, because it was written in 1968 and has been updated and updated and updated, and in our act, the 1994 act, more modern, but still a terrible act, um, both the archiving exceptions apply to archives. They don't mention museums. They permit a single copy for preservation and they make limited provision for other not-for-profit institutions. So if you're not a not-for-profit institution, it may not apply to you. The other reason that museums and cultural institutions collect um, items, such as games, are that they want to provide access. As Helen mentioned, that's part of the experience of the game. The person looking at the game has to also play it. Uh, but this is what the law says. You can communicate one lawfully obtained digital copy in protected format to an authenticated user. The number of users must be no more than the aggregate number of the archive's lawfully obtained digital copies, and the user must be warned about copyright misuse. Also, the librarian or archivist must, as soon as reasonably practicable, destroy any additional copy made in the process of making the copy that is supplied. So you have to think about that one. You may have your digital, your audiovisual game. It may be in danger of deterioration, so you make a copy. You then have to destroy the other copy. Um, and, of course, I don't know if you... You will all know about digitization. I only do because I did a research project last week, last year. And I was told that digitization isn't as easy as it sounds in that you make many copies you, before you get a perfect one. If you make many copies, why would you then want to destroy some of the copies you've made? Museums don't have enough money or staff to keep making copies. It's crazy. Better to make a whole lot at once and keep them. The other thing is access. You can only access a digital copy within the walls of the institution. 
Now, it would be very useful to be able to make the games available online. This is what museums are, are doing these days. They're making their collections available online. So why not be able to make the archived games that they've collected available online on the museum's website? However, the law says only within the premises of the institution. Now, of course, you must remember that all this is only relevant if you haven't got the permission from the copyright owner. We're talking here about orphan works or, or works whose owners won't consent. The law would override that if it were suitable. So because of the interests of the public in culture, the law is there to override um, owners who don't agree to their works being displayed in museums, for example. So if the law is suitable, it can override uh, the wishes of companies, say, like Disney. So, the problems. It requires single... The law allows only a single copy, whereas digital archiving requires multiple copying. Not-for-profit... Many museums and institutions these days have to operate on a fundraising basis. There's, it's arguably not correct to say they're not for profit. They may have to make profits. And accessibility in the Copyright Act, prescriptive and limited, more so in Australia than New Zealand. So in practice, they're impracticable and they constrain institutional objectives. There are other areas, of course. There's also the moral rights, which I haven't talked about. There's also digital rights management. New Zealand, the New Zealand Act allows um, decompilation of digital rights if it's for research purposes or for some other permitted use, such as by a cultural heritage institution. I'm not sure what the Australian Act says about that. So finally, just to bring back to the theme of this um, session, what can the collectors do? Well, trace the copyright owners. That would be the best thing you could do. Find them. Let them give consent for the institutions to archive and preserve these um, important cultural uh, entities. Keep paper records and metadata safe and lobby for changes to the law. That would be the most important thing. Thank you. Thanks very much, Susan. I'm really um, pleased to be able to introduce our final speaker today, um, Winfried Bergmeier, who has come from Germany, from the Berlin Computerspiel Museum. Um, the connection to the museum goes back quite some time, I'm, I'm pleased to report. Um, there have been a number of um, exchanges and trips that uh, Winfried's colleague Andreas Lange has made to Australia and New Zealand and that I've made to Berlin. And so we've developed a really good relationship over the years and uh, it's really the work of the museum in Berlin that has inspired me to actually pursue this work down in this part of the world. So. Um, I'm really pleased to have been able to um, bring them along on the ARC linkage project and to have been able to bring 
Winfried out this week from Berlin. So please come and tell us about your work. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for, uh, for giving me the opportunity to um, speak to you here at the Game, Master, Game Masters Forum. Um, as I said, I'm the collection manager of the Computer Game Museum, and I would like to give you a short impression of the muse museum and then a little bit longer one about preservation, long-term preservation, <coughs> which we are doing in the museum. So there is nothing. <laughs> Whoa. Where is my mouse? Okay. That's stupid. Okay, so this goes this, 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 this. So here's the beginning, but still there's something. <laughs> That's my computer, I'm afraid. It's a little bit slow. Okay. okay. Maybe it goes away somewhere <laughs> later on. Now the mouse is not working really. Perfect. Okay, I can get it. Okay, so I will start anyway. Um, <laughs> maybe it's working uh, after a short time a little bit better. Um, just a, sh a very short history about our museum. Um, it was founded in 1997, and it really started with a first very small exhibition in two rooms. Um, it was limited space, but it was visited by a lot of people who would like to see and to play obsolete video game consoles. This exhibition has to be closed in 2000 because of the end of the rental agreement. From 2001 to 2010, the museum arranged about 30 special exhibitions in Germany, some European countries, and Japan. During this period, a new location and a new concept for founding a permanent exhibition were searched, was searched. Uh, with support of the city of Berlin and the uh, EU, we finally moved to a new location at the Karl Marx Street in Berlin. And this, the new exhibition was opened in February 2011. So uh, this new exhibition was separated in three groups, in three parts. The first one was Homo Ludens, uh, which is gaming in history before the computer. Then uh, game history, which means the first steps in uh, gaming with the computer. And the uh, third one is the big part of the exhibition. It's Homo Ludens Digitalis. But we are a museum. We want to show people not only the games and let them play the games. We want to tell them a little bit about the, the history and the social impact and the culture of computer gaming. We have other topics like uh, music, serious games, game production, uh, preservation, 
I will come to that later. Uh, violence, online games, and addiction. All these are part of our exhibition. Um, for example, we have these, um, <laughs> I don't really use the mouse. Uh, on the top you see our, um, um, our game milestones, uh, where you can use a, a cross, uh, with a control the cross, and you put the cross on one game, and you see the game, uh, screen video of the game, and some more information about that. Bottom left, this is the paint station, some kind of artwork. Uh, you see our uh, hardware, um, a wall of hardware, where we have about 60 objects from the beginning until now. And we have some arcade machines, for example, the Cybermind, which is still working. We're happy, very happy that it's working until now. I don't know how long it will be working, but it's working, actually. Um, and um, now uh, I would like to come more to my field of work, to the, the collection, um, just very short. We have, we have some hardware, about 3,700 pieces of hardware from game consoles to spare parts to arcade machines to artworks. We have software. We have around about 22,000 uh, computer games and an unspecific number of operating system, systems, applications, and plugins we are collecting because we are using emulation. And for that, we need licenses to emulate a Windows 3.11 system or so. Then we have a lot of magazines, 10,000 magazines about game and gaming, uh, and I think about 2,500 books containing things about uh, gaming, uh, research papers, hint books, manuals, etc. And we have this last, oops, sorry, this last part, the archival material, which is all the other stuff which fit in, <laughs> in the first three. Um, there's at the moment not very much, but we try to collect more of them, um, game development material, scribbles, uh, paintings, design concepts, uh, storyboards, and something like that. We uh, um, collect user-generated material of very different kind and uh, advertising material. I, I think I don't have to say a lot about the problem with the hardware and the software that it will last, I think, about 20 years, 30 years, and then we have no console, no data carrier, uh, which is working good and usable. And um, if, if we are very careful with our objects, um, from we just made, made a test. Uh, uh, we have tested 100 Amiga games, three and a half inch di floppy disk, and only 40% is working now. And it will be less and less in the next years. So that really is a problem. 
but we want to keep the games playable. No? And for that purpose, we choose emulation. Because uh, I don't think we can migrate this thing. We, we can't migrate, migrate games because we don't have access to the source code. Maybe we get some, but not of every of the 22,000 games we have. Um, and the second um, problem is that the hardware is going to be defect in the next years. And um, that will not working either. So we have defect data carriers and defect consoles, and so we can't play games anymore. Um, but to avoid this, that we are not able to play our games and to let the visitor play the games, we're choosing an emulation concept for this purpose. Um, and as a side effect, we can use modern computers within our exhibitions, our exhibition, to let the people play these old games. If we use the old consoles, which are working now, for example, we have about uh, 10 working, only oh no, we have about 10 uh, Atari 2600, only four are working, and uh, I think one console may least, might least what, what, one, one, one month, two months, and then they're gone if I put it in the exhibition. So we could use modern computers to play the old games. I know that is not really perfect. I know that's not really the same experience if you played it 20 years ago or 30 years ago with the original system and the original data carrier. But you can play the game. You can uh, interact with the game. Even if it's not the same joysticks or the same uh, controllers than it was 30 years ago. And we could use emulation software within our digital publications. I will show that later on. Um, just to explore, I don't know if it's even, if I have to explore what emulation is, but I will do it in very short, short words. Um, using an emulator means, uh, emulator, an emulator is a piece of software which mimic old hardware. Uh, you can see you can see here uh, a stack of uh, levels. On the uh, bottom, you see the recent system. Could be a modern computer with a Windows 7 system. And if you want to run an Amiga game, it, it won't work because this Amiga game may need Kickstart and it makes needs the Amiga hardware. So you start the emulator on top of this Windows 7 system, and the computer behaves as it was an Amiga computer. So you can run, run Kickstart, and you can run, can run the system at last, or the computer game. And um, a nice effect is that you don't have to use the original floppy disk. Uh, a big uh, part of our work is to make images from the data carriers. Um, so we don't have to use the data carriers anymore, the original. We have a, a, a 
piece of, of uh, we have a file which you could store in, in actual uh, hard disk systems or something like that, and we preserve the bit code. That's what we want. We want to preserve the bit code. And within, within oh, I'm sorry, even always when I'm talking English, I got a so dry mouth. <laughs> And and these uh, disk uh, images or data carrier images could be mounted within the emulator, and it works like a floppy, for example, as a floppy in a floppy disk, or as a cartridge, or as a tape in a tape recorder. So that's uh, nothing. Um, That is, uh, emulation is nothing uh, which, was, uh, event, uh, um, uh, which was made by us. It, it's uh, in the internet for a very long time. And all these emulators, most of the emulators except one for us, um, uh, is from the um, um, emulator gaming. Uh, um, and just the word, the people who. who um, Create emulators. Then that's the whole, whole um, community to say so. And so, uh, but the problem is you have hundred different uh, video game consoles or computer systems, and you have about two hundred different emulators. And when you then have two twenty-two thousand um, different games, it's a hard work to um, make every game run on an emulator because it needed the it's special emulator and the emulator has to be uh, configured and um, if you want to give that to, to normal visitors who are not used to uh, use emulators then you have a problem you can give it the digital image to them and say here use please use for example an Amiga emulator and please uh, make the configuration yourself and hope that works. Um, that's not really um, makes sense in an institution where you want to give your visitors easy access to old games. So we have been part of this KEEP project, which I heard was mentioned today or yesterday. Um, we have within this uh, project uh, partners from three European state libraries, University of Portsmouth, uh, two companies, and the um, European Game Developer Federation. Um, the overall aim of the project was to facilitate universal access to our cultural heritage by developing flexible tools for accessing a wide range of digital objects via emulation. You don't hear anything about games, <laughs> but uh, games was one test case, one important test case for this uh, project. One of the outcomes of this project was the KEEP emulation framework. Um, it's an open source uh, software. You can download it here at SourceForge. It's Java based. 
and it's not only used for institutions, you can use it as a private user, no problem. Um, it's easy to install, it's easy to use. Um, there have to be in the future some minor changes, I think, but um, it's uh, actually in a version which you really could use, and we use it. Um, within this package, when you download it, uh, you get a, a amount of uh, emulators. This is not a new emulator, I have to say, that it's just a uh, framework for using emulators for making um, emulation more easier to use. Within this framework, we have actually an emulator for Amiga, for Commodore 64, for BC Micro, for Sinclair, for Amstrad, and also for DOS. And the nice thing is, uh, this emulation frameworks, uh, I don't know the intro, automize, autom makes an automation, autom automize uh, the preparation of the emulation. What means that? Um, we, you just handle over an image file. For example, it's an uh, .d64 file to the emulator core. This core identifies what is the content of the game, uh, what, what emulator is needed to render this content. For example, uh, it's an uh, D64 file, it's, we use, use the C, Commodore C64 emulator. In the next, next step, it loads this emulator sorry, from out of the emulator archive. And if needed, for the C64 it's not needed, but for Omega you may need kickstart when the kickstart came out of the software archive. So it puts this installation together, it configures it, it mounts the, um, the image file and starts the automation, uh, the emulation, sorry. You don't have to believe that. I can show it to you. Uh, <laughs> I will give you, I hope this, oh, sorry, it's a little bit. I will show you our, a part of our intranet. Okay, it's a little bit stretched, sorry for that. Maybe I can. Maybe you see a little bit more. Now, um, that's uh, within our intranet. We, we don't go out of our museum, you know why. <laughs> um, and uh, here our visitor, no, not our visitor, actually only researchers can use this tool. Uh, they can uh, search for, for games within our game database, with, which is in the background here. And uh, maybe they find something. For example, they're using for Asterix in Morgenland. This game here, 
Um, this, this is actually, actually um, 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 in progress, work in progress. There are some things not really working good, and one thing which is not working well is uh, I didn't um, put, uh, set up the system that it makes a button on which stands start. You must imagine that this here is a start button, sorry for that, and when you, and when you press it, the system handles over the image file to the emulation framework, which is now starting, and it's, it, was, it will take a little bit because it's on my computer, and as you, you have seen, it's not the fastest one. <laughs> now running three servers, sorry for, <laughs> for that, but I'm sure something will pop out, pop up in a few minutes. And um, what we would like to have is uh, most of our games, not, not everything, not, not all of our games are, uh, for, for we could not use emulation for all of our games, but for a lot of them and that for the games we could use that, that we could put up a button within our uh, um, database where the people who look at that, uh, who are searching something there could play directly out of this, so out of this uh, database. So um, now we have really a good opportunity to, to, to easy uh, emulation process. We can do it we just have to handle over the file that we could do uh, in an automatic way within our database. And we don't have to look what emulator is needed for this, uh, how to mount something. So um, that's really a big help for us. And that's not, not only uh, working with games. Uh, that's meant for everything uh, where it could use emulation, uh, for example, uh, if you have old word perfect file and want to render them in the original old word perfect, you can administrate the, um, the system so that you can access this file within an old word perfect version in, in, uh, on a DOS system or something like that. Oh, so I think, <laughs> I just, uh, just not, oh, sorry. I think that's, that's enough. I don't know why this pops up. Um, we are using, uh, just uh, want to say that, we are using emulation also for our digital publications. And here we have um, a, a USB disk. Uh, it's English-German, just like our uh, exhibition. Uh, how it started, computer gaming from 1950 to 1972 with some emulators and some simulators of old machines like the um, uh, ADSEC or uh, ELISA is on here, or um, um, computer space, for example. So, thank you. Thank you so much, Winfried. Would you like to, okay. um, we might get the, the whole panel to come up onto the stage and we can have a, a discussion. Um, I think we have some roving mics around the place. Yes? Yes. 
So if you would like to ask a question, please oh, put your hand down, down here. Okay. Now. We have one over here. Hey, um, these uh, ROM collections that we all benefit from at the moment, uh, you know, obviously didn't come out of nowhere. Um, they, they were built by communities of people illegally for a very long time. Um, I mean, I spent my the, the, the 90s like dumping as many ROMs from Australia that have already expired in Brazil and everywhere around the world. Um, I tried to expose as much of my collection as possible via Home of the Underdogs, all the Underdogs one yes. that were, you know, n not too pop, yeah. you know, not the commercially released stuff. Um, but I, I wonder going forward with what we're going to do with like streaming um, games via OnLive and those sorts of things. I mean, we've solved some of the stuff with World of Warcraft with emulated servers, and I know um, Diablo 3 is almost emulated these days with their back-end servers. But um, yeah, I was wondering about what the role of you know institutions and museums and things like that trying to archive games that are only going to be built and released through you know, streaming means that way, which is where it seems the industry's going with smart televisions and all those sorts of things. Wow. Okay. Ask us a simple question first, <laughs> of course. Um, I should say that our project is focusing on the 80s. Um, there has been a tendency to uh, sort of put software preservation in the too hard basket by museums and go for what they call the low-hanging fruit, which is kind of digitising material artefacts. So we're making the leap into software preservation with our trusty museum partners and, th and that's sort of where we're starting. Those problems, um, I'll open it up to the, to the panel in a minute, um, are ones that are really serious and uh, they've been addressed in a couple of projects that I know of um, in the Preserving Virtual Worlds yeah. work, for instance, through the Library of Congress. Henry Lowood was mentioned, Stanford was a partner on that. Um, there's a range of initiatives happening around the world and really, um, you know, I don't know is the answer. Um, but there are some good people working on it and the game preservation community is quite small and quite tight-knit. So, you know, when they find out the answers, they'll share them, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, does anybody else want to have well, a go? I want to say, and it was sort of what I was hoping to try and convey in my presentation before I got, you know, blue screen brain when the technology didn't work, um, is that because the, the nature of the amount of work that needs to be done, the way it has to be done in a timely fashion, the way it has to be done with a level of technical expertise, the way it has to be done outside the law. Um, we are currently dependent on the fan communities to do so much of that work because um, the museum can't move fast enough at the moment, but what we need to do is create really proper creative partnerships between those communities and institutions as we go forward because I, one of the things about the valuable work that fan communities do is it's incredibly vulnerable to, you know, when we did the Sonic exhibition uh, here in 2005, we did, we got a lot of information from a site called Green Hill Zone who have this encyclopedia about Sonic and uh, we, uh, we were obviously working with THQ and, and SEGA who were fantastic, but they just didn't either have or provide access to that information. So we were dependent on the fan community for that richness of information. The site's gone, you know, it's gone. Yeah, mm. you know, and, and 
collections within institutions are not like World of Spectrum, let's collect everything Spectrum. I mean, we're looking at our project only at Australian Games. We have curated collections, but the work that those groups do is just phenomenal work. And I meant to show you, you know, they box art, screenshots, game capture, uh, all the reviews and all the magazines, because they've, you know, they're combined with the Spectrum magazine site to, to create that. So they're kind of quite doing quite well with their own networks. All of that really valuable information, all those hours of work that no institution could afford to pay for. Um, we need to look at how we can preserve that in perpetuity because those owners will one day uh, not be able to continue that project for whatever reasons, um, and that information will get lost again. You know, that's, that's a really interesting point, though, because I, I work with a lot of archivists now, and we don't even know how to preserve the physical media. We don't know how to, I mean, the boxes deteriorate, the discs deteriorate, uh, and we, there's no way to capture any individual player's experience of a game, so that, the, the physical media is hard enough, the actual experience of a game is impossible, just inevitably impossible, but holy cow, there is going to be no physical, I never even thought about that. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it won't be long before there won't be a thing to preserve, uh, and I have no idea, I mean, people don't know how to do you know, preserve the 80s or, or the, the, the 2012s. And yeah, that's a huge, huge problem that I, now I'm even more scared. <laughs> um, wow. We are, we are actually, uh, do you hear me? Okay. <laughs> we are actually setting up uh, such a project for um, things like um, um, uh, World of Warcraft or something like that. Um, what we can't preserve is uh, the, the millions of players mm. which are playing uh, at one such time uh, 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 World of Warcraft. Um, what we are more focusing on is first documentation of everything we get in hand and to get maybe to get uh, one of the servers and to make guided tours uh, in some way uh, how you today go to uh, uh, have guided tours to uh, the old Rome or so. Um, yes, <laughs> we, we can't preserve what's going on now, that, that's mm. clear. Mm. Uh, we, we can documentate it. Uh, In traditional it. kinds of means, yeah. 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 But um, we, won't, we do not want to get these worlds lost. Mm. Um, they're a little, little bit of empty then when we have it. <laughs> But um, or maybe we can arrange some some from time to time some old World of Warcraft uh, uh, hours to play more people on a special day to play this, mm. and we have to have the um, developers in the boat, mm. um, and we have them in, in in Europe, and they want to preserve their their games. Yeah, so what th happens? They will help us. What happens when everything is in the cloud and there is no client? There's nothing. Yes. <laughs> there's nothing local. <laughs> you know, that's that's incredible. Then you have the copyright holders, and the service providers, and the players yeah. all to worry about. I mean, that that's a huge problem. Well, New Zealand's gone so far as to we do have legal deposit of web pages now, so I think that's as far as we've oh. got. But um, the National Library hasn't started recording um, online games yet, but I mean that's a possibility, I suppose. Again, you wouldn't get the experience that the players input, I guess. 
I remember hearing the National Librarian talking very enthusiastically about how they were going to do all this stuff and they mm. were going to, you know, what about MOGs, you know? And I thought, you've got no idea what this involves, <laughs> have you? <laughs> Clearly, yes. otherwise you wouldn't be so enthusiastic. They are, they are recording political mm. pages, things mm. like that. Yeah, okay, we've got a question down here from Nick. Uh, I advocate that we all just um, run it out to nitrate film and put it in a salt mine like Disney <laughs> once did and uh, it'll be all safe for the next You ever mess years. around with nitrate film? <laughs> that stuff will yeah, kill Yeah, I have. You. I used to like setting that fire stuff to will it kill to show people what it did. Like a lot of nitrate um, in my I, life. I, I guess I just wanted to make uh, a couple of comments from the point of view of a film archivist. There's no doubt that we face a lot of problems with technical obsolescence, but in some ways that has always been the work of archives. We do understand um, prioritisation, we do understand the need to protect and migrate across formats. Um, but I just wanted to pick up on, on the point that Guy said um, before. Archives have always relied on people who do illegal things. Um, the National Film and Sound Archive, I hope there's no one here who might challenge me on this, but they have one of, of the country's best cine sound movie tone newsreel collections because a guy during the war whose job was to drive it to the tip and throw it onto a fire, nitrate rolls of film, he said they used <laughs> to burst into flames before they hit the fire, or more worryingly, he, his job was to put them in his mini miner and drive them to a factory where they stripped the silver gelatin out and used the cellulose nitrate to make carpets. Um, he couldn't bear to do that, so he snuck them home. He then got a job as a projectionist in the National Library in Canberra in the middle of the parliamentary triangle and he had 400 rolls of nitrate film stashed behind the projection screen for 40 years. The only reason he didn't tell anybody he had them was because he thought he would get into trouble because he effectively stole them. He was a national hero, you know, an unsung national hero because he, he, he hoarded them. I hope you'll forgive me using that word, Warren. But, um, he yes, shouldn't worry about getting blown up. I mean, literally well, yeah, exploding, yeah. Not, I mean, not getting arrested. Yes, the law's an ass, and, and we hope that we can encourage those that, that make the laws and revise the laws to catch up with us. But archives rely on volunteers, and they rely on passionate volunteers. And yes, sometimes they rely on people to do what is today seen as the wrong thing, but rest assured they are lauded in, in, the, myth, in the future as heroes. <laughs> Okay, we have a question up here. Um, actually, you, you, the gentleman on the front just then taken my segue as well, which was, um, I'm, a, I'm from the State Library of Victoria, and, and so we deal with these issues all the time, but it, and in many respects, talking about games and, the, and them being really the basis of, of starting with the fan community is, is exactly how many of the great collections that we have started. So our children's literature collection, which is you know, the biggest in the country, started with a guy called Ken Pound, who just collected it voraciously. Our chess collection, we... Libraries and, and archives have always relied on, on the fan bases um, who've just collected it and it will suddenly pop up at some point. Um, I think it's because many people with games don't realise... Well, and those cultural institutions are not geared, as this discussion is, is talking about, to actually collect these sorts of things. Um, my question is, is, is not so much about the item but also about not forgetting the people because m my fear too is, you know, w with 
all the amazing people that we've, we've seen and heard from over the last two days, um, we need to also record and capture their stories. Because, yes, the item will only take you so far and playing the game will take you so far, but imagine being able to kind of hear the, the Steve Faulkners of this world talk to you as you play the game or something and tell you about what they went through to develop it. And, and I, I hope also we can adapt this into whatever processes and great things we're doing to collect games, but also let's record and get down the histories of the people who are making them because I don't want... Um, it also to just to exist in these forums as well. It, because in the future when we realise that it's been so valuable and so important and we regret not having been more diligent in collecting them, at least having some stories of the people will, will be best, at least, you know, something. Absolutely. So. Anybody who wants to do oral history PhDs, come and see me. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't really history. a question more than a <laughs> statement. There are several people We'd doing oral history projects right now and uh, there are people starting to... to fall in line with that. Uh, there was a book that came out recently that's actually quite good called Gamers at Work that is just a collection of, of you know, people's memories of starting their companies and it's, it's pretty astonishing. So yeah, it's starting to happen. It's a key component of the Play It Again project. So, yeah. Okay, we have time for, I think we can, might be able to squeeze in one more question. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Hello, um, I'll, I'll, my question is really quick. Uh, I saw a really cool screenshot of Minecraft on one of the slides, can't remember which one it was, and I just love the worlds that people build in games like Minecraft and also worlds that people build in user-created content in general. I wondered if you guys care about preserving those kind of things, the things that people build within games, not just the games themselves. That was sort of the point I was trying to make, is it's no point just preserving the software in that case you have to preserve the culture around it and that, I mean that stands for all games but in particular for those games like MMOs and games like Minecraft which are you know sandbox games where you actually make things and the players actually develop the culture of those games. Yeah but I think I think you hit on I mean there are a couple of problems that have been sort of obliquely mentioned here but not actually addressed I mean it, it is true that that film archives have to deal with a lot of the same issues that, that game archives do, but but the position of the sprocket holes hasn't changed since Edison crushed the Lumieres, you know, and the way we record sound hasn't changed since the Warner's discs went away, and you know, I mean, it's still the technology has been really pretty set for a while, and and the other the other issue that that I just I'm just because I'm going to take advantage of my time on the stage, um, you know, w games uh, I, I I've said this. Uh, before at this show, I mean, games turned everybody into creators, and, and in, in my work, that's sort of sort of a, a, a figurative way to look at it. But in the case of Minecraft, it's literal, and in the case of, of a lot of games, it is absolutely literal. And and you know, preservationists have to make choices inevitably. And like, with it, to preserve all of that stuff, it'd be like saying, let's preserve every letter written last year. You know, or every email. We have to save every email. It's just, I mean, it's a really hard problem. I'm not saying it's not a worthy problem, but saving that Trojan horse might mean not being able to save Richard Garriott's first game. Which one do you do? You know, it's hard to say. Yes, tough, I tough agree. Problem. And um, with on legal deposit, for instance, institutions have to have policies around those. They can't collect every single thing that's been written. So that's exactly the same point. Um, Okay, well, I think that we're out of time now. So would you join with me in thanking our panellists today? Thank you.
You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.